Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. It is day 29 of OSR October, and I'm going to, for the last couple of days, I'm going to hit on a few games that I think are less commonly spoken about, possibly because of the genres that they're in. This one is science fiction, or more specifically, sword and planet science fiction, and it is called Warriors of the Red Planet. This is by Night Owl Workshops. They've got a bunch of different games. They're all like kind of genre games, if you will. They have like a, a superhero one. They have a pirate one. They have a, they got a bunch of them. I'll put a link. But this one really appeals to me. Now, I've played several OSR games that are uh, space-based. Uh, White Star would be one that I, is really cool and probably a lot of people know about. I like this one because it has that pulpy feel. It's not full of laser guns and stuff. It's got some weird stuff going on. It has mentalists and uh, let's get into it. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the from the back of the book because I always feel like that's good. And then we'll kind of do a flip through and I'll put a link and you guys can check this out. It's not very expensive. It's like 10 bucks for the PDF and like 20 for a printed book. And it's, uh, let's see, 125 pages. Warriors of the Red Planet is a game of classic pulp of sword and planet science fantasy. If your tastes run towards flashing swords and pistols against a backdrop of alien vistas, soaring airships and lost civilizations on faraway worlds, then this is the game for you. And I, I definitely agree with that. So let's take a quick look. The The art on the cover, actually all the art I believe is done by one person. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Let me just confirm that. Illustrations. Yeah. Thomas Denmark is the, uh, the artist in all this. So I have... Um, Warriors of Mars, I think it's called, which is the TSR product, which is very cool, by the way, but cannot be had legally, unfortunately, because it uh, was discontinued uh, before TSR got moved around and bought up and stuff. So it's it's kind of out there in the, the nether. But that's very much a, a miniatures war game. But when you look at the the line art in it and stuff, it has a kind of a similar feel to this. It has that very kind of black and white pulpy stuff. Uh, this one has way less nudity. It has no nudity, actually. Um, on the cover, we have some kind of like a beast uh, with six six legs, kind of a lizard beast. I'm sure I should know the name of that because I like uh, John Carter stuff. It has a female with a long sword, almost like a katana in one hand and a laser pistol in the other. And then we, we've got a, and she's got like a, you know, like a space bikini on and like a tiara. And then we have a man with kind of a more of a saber and a laser pistol or some kind of a pistol. And he's got, you know, classic uh, not much clothes on because it's John Carter, right? Otherwise, John Carter is mostly naked. Anyways, <laughs> this is family friendly. I don't know why I'm focusing on that today. All right, so we've got our character creation. This uses, again, it, it talks a lot about using stuff from the original game, which would be what I would consider OD&D, but the, the stats are generated more like BX in the sets that they're minus three to plus three. You've got multiple races you can play. The stats are the same as any D&D type game. Um, You've got multiple races you can play. The ancients, they are typically the last remaining folk of a lost or greater civilization. Often they are long-lived. You've got the elevated, which are animals who have, uh, you know, gained, you know, human-level intellect. So you could play like a, like an elevated, like a bird or something, I guess. Uh, then you've got exotic. Exotics are typically the native inhuman populace of the world or region. You can choose from two tables below or roll randomly. So let's pick. So you have a one table gives you uh, ability, bonuses, and penalties. One table gives you the color of your skin or fur. And the third table gives you a D12 table of weird stuff. Long-lived, night vision, four arms, furry. <laughs> Always fun. Oh, but it says roll for a separate color. So you get, if you're furry, you have two colors. All right, you got humans, which of course are humans. You have unliving, which could be like 
birthed out of vats or reanimated, uh, that kind of stuff. Not so much robots, although I suppose you could use this for an Android as well, because I don't think there's an Android uh, race or class here. Then we have our classes. We have the fighting men, which, of course, ties into the idea of John Carter. It's not meant that it can only be for males, obviously, um, with a really nice picture next to it. Then we've got the scoundrel, and they're like your thief class. You've got the mentalists, which is a like a psionic-based class. And the scientist, I think, yeah, the scientist. So let me take a quick moment to talk about this. So the way they do this is it's you basically have spells. The mentalist has powers per day by level. So basically they're your spells. And the scientist has gadgets. So they own a number of gadgets, but each one only functions X number of times per day. So effectively, that's how they control the Vancean type spell casting with this, if you want. I think it works pretty well. I mean, it definitely requires a buy-in, right? So like for the scientist, it says recharge. Some items require recharging to function. Scientists are capable of recharging one such item per day at a materials cost of 100 gold pieces per charge. So the scientist has to, keep, has to pay to keep using their stuff, which is kind of neat. Okay. We've got our equipment list, which includes everything from lances and pole arms and swords to pistols and rifles. They've got javelins, crossbows, so you got a good mix. The armor table is the best, so I'm just going to read the armor table. Breastplate, steel. Harness, basic. Harness ornate. Leather. Metal war bikini or jeweled harness. You know what my characters wear. Bracers. Greaves, shield large. There we go. No full plate in this. You're walking around barely dressed because you are a sword and planet warrior or warrior princess. Which there is a, I think you can play a, a princess in the back, well, as an extra class. And you are basically, you know, running around on these planets where I guess it's warm, wearing your cool harness and all kinds of weapons strapped to you. Most characters begin playing knowing the basic common tongue. Some worlds have telepathic language. Again, a shout out to John Carter and stuff there. So this is why I'm really pointing out this game. You know, besides the fact that I just love Sword and Planet and this fun stuff going on. So many OSR clones, or retro clones, if you will, and I actually think I made a podcast about this, take the basics of D&D, they change a couple of things. Oh, instead of a cleric, I'll call them a priest, or instead of a magic user, they're a wizard. And then they basically just reprint the game. These guys go out of their way to make a fresh game. In fact, I don't, I don't even think there's an open game license in the back of this. When we look at the mentalist powers, now, yes, a lot of them do the same things that spells do in D&D, but they're written with the flavor and the intention of this world and this style of play. So level one, control person, forced healing, loaded glance, mind bullets, minor telekinesis, mind telepathy, solemnness, spiders. Okay, so let's, (laughs) there's some fun stuff. Forced healing, by the way, is amazing because it allows you to heal somebody, but it talks about how the healing is incredibly painful, so it kind of you know, that you're forcing their bodies to heal quicker than they should. So they're in pain and they can't, they get a penalty for X number of rounds after they're healed. So it's not this, you're in the middle of combat, you throw a heal at somebody, just keep going. It's like, oh, I mean, just think about that, right? You've seen science fiction, I'm sure. Spiders is always fun. This power allows the mentalist to cause as many as four victims to hallucinate. They are covered in fearsome biting insects or arachnids. (laughs) So, so good. Okay, so we got in and goes brain drain, paralyzed monster, teleport, confusion, compulsion, stunning glance. Again, this is all stuff that your psionic-based character would do, your mentalist, if you will. 
Then we get our scientists. They have, for their gadgets, flamethrower, interpreter lens, personal shield, ray gun, remote starter, stunning field, tricorder, <laughs> weakening beam, lightning thrower, animated repulsion. So you've got all these like fun things. And, you know, character creation, including the spells and stuff, covers... Looks like including the sample player character, you've got 32 pages. So it's a pretty brief rule set. It's a, you know, it's an OSR rule set. There is 120 some pages in here. So we've got playing the game, how to adventure in the wilderness, how to adventure underground. And then we've got uh, urban adventures. We've, then we've got a referee section that goes into the, the those are more like overviews. Uh, the, the referee section goes into the mechanics of it. Okay. Uh, combat, of course, is always a thing. This is an example of play, which... I really appreciate they've got multiple ways to attack. You can do ascending AC, descending AC or target number saving throw table. So this has the explosion. This doesn't do the single saving throw that you see in a lot of OSR games, which was, I guess, uh, taken from swords and wizardry. This has six saving throws, explosions, mentalism, energy, poison, falls and general. <laughs> so that's kind of fun. Then we have campaign and adventure design. It talks about tone. It talks about scope. NPCs, mapping, episodic play, the wilderness, and then the underworld. And then we go into a whole monster section. And what's really great about this to me is that going back on Rob's original kind of, uh, you know, thought that, you know, in him, to him, OSR, the first thing it triggers in his mind is that compatible with TSR D&D, these monsters you could easily pluck out. It's got AC in the ascending and descending that has hit dice. It has the attack. The damage for the attacks, it saves as the level, you know, so for instance, fighter 10 in the case of this thing, and then a movement, and then it describes it. And what's great about this is if you have, if you play OD&D like I do, the, at least the fourth printing, the one that I'm using, uh, it lists as optional monsters, lots of the monsters from the, you know, the John Carter series, and there's no stats for those. You're supposed to just make them up, but I have stats here now, so I can definitely use this as a reference if I don't want to make up my own stats, or at least look at them and see what you know, what somebody else did and then decide if I want that or not. Now we do have, let's see, let's, let's pick out a monster here. Hornbrim. The Hornbrim is a swift eight-legged animal uh, of the open plains and wastes. It possesses a single unicorn-like horn with crystalline tip. Hornbrims are able to flash light from these crystals, which is apparently how they communicate. These creatures are naturally gentle in intelligence, but poaching them has made them increasingly hostile. They travel in herds of 20 to 40. So not only do they have a cool uh, monster there, but you also have an adventure hook, right? They, they, you can send the, the characters up because those things are being poached. Or I guess if you play a certain kind of character, you can poach them. Then you've got different types of, uh, you know, again, men as in human. They've got the, uh, including the, they got the green man, of course. Oh, you got to have the great man of Mars, right? And they have, I know they have it in here somewhere. They have, yep, man, red. And hold on, where are you? Man, red, princess. Here we go. So you can, the, you have the Martian princess as a, listed here as a monster. And I think if we go back further, let's see. There's a lot of monsters in here. This is a big section. And we, okay, here we go. Appendix, races of Mars. Red men of Mars. So we can play a red man slash princess. So if you're not familiar with John Carter, they generally call them red men. And then the the women, I don't know if all the women are princesses, but you know, the, the nobles are Martian princess. So here we go. We can play a Martian princess. They get special uh, abilities. You can also play red Martian warriors. You can play the green men of Mars. Uh, 
Then you can play Earthlings on Mars. You can Then they have other Mars, Martian races listed. Then we have Appendix A, which is a bunch of random tables, so we can random wilderness encounters, which are always useful. We've got urban encounters, wasteland, desert, random flora generation. That's always fun. Let's pick something. Uh, the color is sand, and the characteristic is it has mouths. <laughs> okay. We have a random sword and planet name generator. This is a D100 list, and you just roll in here a couple times, I guess. Oh, one D4 times. Here we go. So we can get Dar Tor or La Pra Gul. And then we've got, uh, let's see, random rune generation. I've actually used this a bit, uh, even in my D&D games. These are really fun. You've got a D6 for your type. So monuments, relics, settlements, vehicles, buildings, unexplained. And then you roll on whichever table. So let's say a relic. Partially burned gold tip lances, each inscribed with hieroglyphs. Or a vehicle. Broken chariot with Thor skeletons. Or an ancient airship with particular archaic weaponry. Or settlements, a cliff dwelling. Shiny steel sphere, buildings, a leaning tower, a hermit shanty, a menacing shrine, and then we have unexplainable, a giant rotting fruit, a bizarre shrine set around a talking metal head, and then we have a random adventure generator, which is always fun. Let's see, we'll pick here, steal an item from a cliff dwelling, the adversary is a, a secret society, and then we have weird science, which is kind of like your magic items, so let's pick a, take a pick here. Let's see, kit healing. This kit contains 1d6 medical compressors, each of which heals 2d4 points of damage. It may also contain anti-poison or disease. Gloves, insulated, allows the wearer to handle charged or hot objects without harm. Pistol, stun. This pistol knocks its target prone or helpless for 3d4 rounds. Nice. Or one round if the save is made. And then we have Sorcerers of the Black Gate if you want to add magic into your campaign. So this is basically a magic user class. You've got a knowledge ability, so you can roll for, uh, you know, arcane knowledge. They have spell slots. And what's kind of cool about this is they've got uh, corruption. So the way it works, unlike, let's say, DCC, whereas if you just roll bad or whatever, which is kind of gonzo and crazy, this really is just set up to be every time you level up, you roll one random corrupt corruption. So you'll everybody who's high-level magician will have a bunch of corruptions as opposed to like some games where if it's random, right, you might have a bunch of corruptions when you're low level or no corruptions and be high level. So I kind of like that because it will help telegraph to the players, right? If you meet this magician and they're covered with all kinds of weirdness, then you know they've been around. Then we have their spells, uh, creeping, crawling, curse. Up to three targets are covered in biting black insects for one round. Ooh, Worms of Jerbus summons a 60 foot long, five foot wide segmented elemental worm from any available stone at earth for 1d6 turns plus one per level. The worm does not attack, but it maybe uses a bridge, a wall, a ladder, or even transportation. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Okay. And then, of course, here's our corruption. Limbs shriveled and atrophy. Uh, neck elongated. Spread a prehensile tail. Body dies. Continues as undead. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. And there's a really basic skill system in here. Like I said, this is a, a very this is a very complete game. They did not leave anything out of this, really. You can play this with nothing else, in my opinion. And I have done that. So the way the skill system works is it's based on your stats, but it's also based on your levels on some level. So levels on some level. So there's two charts. One is for levels one through six, and the other one is seven plus. You reference the ability score, and then it gives you the chance in six. So like if they're going to push open a door, for instance, that in their first level, and they have a 13 strength, then they'd have a two and six chance. Like that's basically how that works. If they're going to try to like solve, you know, decipher a code or something, that's, I guess it's not specifically somebody's skill set. And let's say they're eighth level and they have a 16 intelligence, they'd have a four and six chance. So that's kind of how that works. I like this system. There's something similar in Hyperborea. 
and I used it to great success in my campaign. Then Appendix D, this is what we all waited for, ship-to-ship -ship combat. So we have airships in this, which is really fun. And it, it goes into the ship statistics. It talks about the, you know, how it works. And then there's a whole bunch of little illustrations of fun little Martian flyers, which is so cool. And then we've got a target AC and an airship hit table. And finally, now the only thing I will say about this, as far as I can tell, you look at this, I haven't actually used this, just only read about it. So I actually like the OD&D aerial combat better in some ways than most other combat I've seen. I know that sounds fun. You're probably not surprised by that. But that's because it's the one part of the of the game where I think hit location kind of matters, especially if you're on flying creatures. Maybe it doesn't matter as much on ships, but if you're on flying creatures, I think that really matters. So I do I do like hit location for aerial stuff because then you can do stuff like, well, if it's hit in the head or the wing, then it might go to the, it might be grounded, right? This doesn't seem to have that from what I can see. Again, I haven't used it, but the ships are really cool. I've used the 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 pictures of the ships that have to use ships in games. I just haven't had anybody fighting them. And finally, Appendix N, which is so funny. They call it Appendix N, but of course it's not, you know, the last one before that is C. Suggested reading. And there is, let's see, this is on page 117. It's most of that page. There's an illustration of there as well. Then there's page 118, 119. So there's two full pages and a three-quarter page of books and authors that you could read to get inspired for this, which I think is great. There's a bunch of stuff on here I've never read, and I feel like I need to go back and read some of it. Ooh, it has the gore stuff. Now, I'll tell you, the gore stuff, <laughs> as far as the movies, are pretty terrible. Jason can probably tell us about that. Then we have an ancient Mars map, and we have a really cool Mars underworld kind of uh, cutaway, and it reminds me of the, I guess somewhat spoiler here, uh, a map, one of the maps that's in the Lost City. Well, it actually reminds me also of the cover of the Monster Manual, you know, the, the original Monster Manual. It has that like, cutaway underground uh, setup. In any case, there's an index in the back because I know people love to have indexes, as do I. And the final page says, I have ever been prone to seek adventure and to investigate and experiment where wiser men would have left well enough alone. And that is a quote from John Carter in Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars. So there you go. That is Warriors of the Red Planet. If I were picking a sci-fi-ish RPG, now I know it's Sword and Planet, so it's not hard sci-fi. This is my go-to. Hey, Daniel Jason here. I was listening to your Hyperborea episode, and I heard this. I, I don't know. I mean, that's what I always think of with second edition, but I think this is firmly in the place of first edition with some squeezing and tweaking and moving around to make it actually, in my opinion, oh, oh I'm going to get feedback. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, a better game. And then I rage quit. Okay, I did some deep breathing, counted to 10, walked around, cleared my head, went back, finished listening to your podcast. I, I'm, I, you know I'm messing with you, Daniel. Um, so I am a huge fan of AD&D First Edition with all its flaws and foibles and all, all its nuances and high guy gaxian writing and the fact you have to flip and turn through multiple books for the rule system. The rules are spread out not only through the core books, but also the supplements. But to me, AD&D is A, nostalgia, because that's the version that we played the most, and B, the challenge of trying to run it, quote-unquote, rules is written, right? And I'm in a group every other Friday night that does that, and, and it's a lot of fun. 
But, you know, I'm not going to claim it's the superior role-playing game, right? I, I, I was kidding on that earlier call. Although, I, I'll, I'll send you a, a blog post where that argument is made at the D&D versions, which is really interesting. It's from one of the BX Black Razor blog. I'll send you the link, and if you play this and you want to, you can put a link to that blog post in your show notes. But anyway, I love Hyperborea. Hyperborea is a great book. You talk about a huge tome. Second edition, where it's all combined into one book, is a huge tome. It's right up there with Dungeon Crawl Classics. Um, I, I Like you, I'm waiting on the Leatherette version of the third edition. But I have looked at the PDFs. I have created a character for third edition. I've not played third edition yet, but I do look forward to doing that. Eventually, I know Carl Rodriguez is running it, so hopefully, over the Geomologist Presents, I'll get in one of his games one of these days. Um, not, and I, well, let me clarify, I didn't make a character and expect to bring that character into this world. I made a character to, you know, see what was different. And, and it's not really any different for second edition as far as that goes. Um, I, I don't create characters and then go to campaigns and say, hey, can I bring my character to your game? So I, I just wanted to clarify that. Anyway... Hyperborea is a it is a great game. If I was going to play a D&D based or D&D inspired sword and sorcery game, Hyperborea 100% would be it. If I was going to play a quote-unquote retroclone based on TSR era D&D, Hyperborea would be it. Um I I mean I might do something specialized if I was doing colonial gothic, you know, that kind of game, I might use sabers and witchery you know, based on swords and wizardry. But really, for if I had to pick one retroclone of of Gygaxian D&D, it would be Hyperborea. If I had to pick one of post-Gygaxian D&D, it would be Dungeon Crawl Classics, because that's based on third edition. But anyway, Hyperborea is a great game for all the reasons you said, and I blathered on well way, way enough, but I just want to tell you thank you for getting it out there, putting the word out there, preaching. I know that Carl's just re-released the episode where you and he talk about Hyperborea. I think it's you and him. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> that, that'd be embarrassing if if he talks about Hyperborea with somebody else, wouldn't it be? Um, anyway, Carl's just re-released an episode on the Gemologist Presents about Hyperborea. And um, I, I really think that it's a great game. Highly recommend everybody check it out. And I will talk to you later. Take care. Thanks, Jason. That was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Of course, I was just giving him a hard time about AD&D. I love me some AD&D. And maybe I'll talk about it a little bit here in the future. I'm going to change up the podcast slightly. I guess this is a weird place to announce it, but I've decided that I'm going to do my seasons now based on OSR October. So at the end of each year, or the end of each season, will be this burst for OSR October. So clearly there's going to have to be a second year of this. (laughs) So season three of this podcast will start in November. And while I am building my OD&D hack or clone, I think that I are, I'm at the stage where I'm not making changes so rapidly that I've been publishing enough. And I'm really enjoying publishing the podcast. So I, I think I'm going to start talking a little bit more about some of the other stuff I'm developing and not just that system. And maybe we'll take a delve into the Dungeon Master's Guide because I mean, the player's handbook is nice too. In fact, I would say if you take the the AD&D player's handbook and you take that section about being a good player or whatever in the back and you hand it to a brand new player, that is also a great primer. Like I know that we have these like primers and stuff that people have written, but it 
is a really good thing. If you haven't read it in a while and you have the AD&D First Edition Player's Handbook, pull out that player's advice section or whatever is in the back. I think it's a very, very good read. As always, if you would like to call into the show, there is a link in the show notes that leads back to the Anchor page where you could do so. But probably the most efficient way these days is to join my Discord server, which there is also a link to, and you can send me a private message there. If you are on the Audio Dungeon Discord or you are on Clerics Wear Rigmail or Grizzly Peaks, you can also find me there and send me a message that way. Either way, I hope to hear from you soon, and I'll be back again tomorrow.